Hello and welcome to the Infinite Love Podcast, a place where we share stories on how love can transform negative emotions and pain into strength. We talk about all things related to love, positivity, and kindness. And I am your host, Corinne Kamara. Hello and welcome to episode 36, From Stateless to Inclusion and Equity. Martine's experience of being a former undocumented immigrant and a survivor of statelessness established her business savvy and sensitivity to create rapport and a sense of safety with individuals of all backgrounds. Martine is an elevation strategist who provides individuals and organizations with techniques to harness their greatest potential. She builds bridges between those who have the resources to invest in human capital and those who benefit from mentorship and sponsorship. Her novel, Illegal Among Us, a stateless woman's quest for citizenship, recounts her journey of going through a seven-year battle in deportation processes without a family or country. Martine is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. She helps uplift humanity by providing individuals and organizations with techniques to harness their greatest potential. In today's episode, Martine shares her powerful journey of becoming an American citizen. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome to the Infinite Love Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Martine. We actually went to college together about years ago. <laughs> and it's so great to be here as adults on our purpose, talking about things that we love and care about. And I'm so honored to have you on the show today, Martine. Thank you, Corinne. It's an honor to be here and to connect with your audience. <laughs> so I always want to start out the podcast talking about what your love lesson is and what is your story and how you've came to be where you are today. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, I'll start off with my love lesson. My love lesson is, so I know that, and I've heard throughout my life that, you know, in order for, you've got to love yourself first before anyone else can love you. And I actually disagree with that. So my love lesson is you have to find out who first loved you in order for you to actually even be receptive and create the capacity to love yourself. Um, and I'll tell you like my journey and my story to kind of explain how I got to that realization. Um, and ultimately I'll also start with saying that, you know, when I, you know, people say, well, Martine, that doesn't make sense. You got to love yourself first. And I say, you know, but isn't that the idea of knowing who loved you first, isn't that what religion and spirituality is all about? It's rooted in, you know, that concept it's, you know, knowing that higher power loves you, there's an infinite source that loves you and that you're connected to something greater and bigger than yourself. And that's what gives us the capacity to love ourselves. But I'll give you a much more uh, detailed explanation. So uh, I'll try to keep the long story short, Corinne, because I think you know that I'm long-winded. So if I start to get too verbose, just tell me to hurry up. But um, I'm really, really, like I'm in love with life because there was a time where I hated life. I hated my life. Um, I was resentful of the life that was handed to me. And I was a victim of 
my circumstances and I couldn't see beyond that. And today I'm in a place where it all makes sense, right? And so way back when, when I was in college with you, um, I remember going through my immigration situation and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But I remember thinking, I wonder if there's gonna be a day and a time where I'll look back on my life and say that it was all worth it. And I did not think that would ever happen because I was so angry, so hurt by life. But I can honestly say that today, I can say that it was all worth it. Losing my mother, losing my stepfather, being orphaned at a young age, like being in deportation proceedings for seven years of my life, all of it was worth it because I've come full circle. So that gives you insight to who I am and my story. But um, ultimately, I was born in I was born in Zambia in Africa, and my family's from DR Congo. So um, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm ethnically Congolese. Um, I came to the U.S. when I was four. Came with my mother. Her whole family was here. Um, she, their, her family had the, you know they wanted to fulfill that American dream that most people have. And uh, there's a term that we use in, in Congo, it's a Swahili term, um, and to refer to America, it's called Bulaya. Bulaya means paradise. So like most immigrants that decide to uh, come to the U.S., you know, they, they see the U.S. as a, a as paradise, a place where there's opportunity. And so that's really what um, my mother's desire was and her family, her family's desire. And shortly after my mom and I moved to the US where her family was, she remarried and I had a stepfather. And for all intents and purposes, my life was pretty good. I was just a normal kid growing up in Maryland and uh, life was, was fine, you know? And, you know, when the first shoe dropped, when I was about 13, when my stepfather uh, was diagnosed with cancer and he died shortly thereafter. And it was just my mother and I, and by the time I was 15, she died. And, uh, you know, I really do feel like the rug was pulled from underneath me because for someone at a, for someone at such a young age, um, you know, losing your mother for anyone, losing your mother is like, you losing could it feels like losing your bedrock right and to lose your mother and your your father he wasn't just my stepfather he was my father um to lose both parents uh did feel like um the literally the world was was uh pulled or the rug was pulled from underneath me um but then you know as if things couldn't get more challenging enough um i had to navigate like the world on my own because my family abandoned me and I could explain, I wrote a whole book about it to explain how that happened. But ultimately I was, uh, I moved from one home, one, one family's house to another where I experienced abuse, neglect, or, um, you know, individuals who just decided to turn a blind eye to the abuse and neglect, you know, that I experienced from other family members. So, um, to again, to try to make this long story short, um, you know, I was in a place where I felt broken, downtrodden, suicidal, like there was nothing hopeful about my life. You know, I felt like everything had been taken from me and what was the point of living? 
And that was my, my very, I guess my, my, my first experience with love, right. In that time frame, in that chapter of my life. So I was living with my aunt at the time. Um, and I was working in her consignment store. She decided to take me out of school, which is a total violation. Like, like, she was breaking every child labor law known to man. I was working in this consignment store by myself. It was a very, um, it was a dangerous neighborhood. There was a murder that had just taken place across the street in another store. And I was there by myself. And how old were you? I was like 15, 16. She decided I I didn't need to go to school. And I was managing the cash register, all of that, not in school. And this beautiful, I equate to angel, this Jamaican woman comes into the store And she asked me this one question and it was a question that was laced with love, but I didn't know that at the time, right? Love is so beautiful because it shows up in so many different ways and you don't always recognize it. She asked me, you know, had I ever considered going to boarding school? I was like, who are you? Like in my mind, I'm like, who's this lady? I don't know her. What does she want from me? My life sucks. You know, she didn't know my life. And, um, you know, I think I gave her a really polite response, like, oh, no, I did you know, but boarding school sounds lovely, and probably just dismissed her. She came back a week later, when my aunt was in the store with me, it was on a weekend. And um, she befriended my aunt, they, they went to the back of the store, they were speaking for like hours. And in that moment, I decided that, yeah, she's, she doesn't, yeah, anyone who would befriend my aunt and not see past her manipulation and her, you know, her ways um, is probably not worth my time. And so I was right about her, made that assessment. And I watched, I remember vividly, and I was like 15 and a half. I remember vividly the two of them coming up to me, laughing, cackling, like two old friends. And my aunt said, you know, Martine and the way she liked to talk, she, she always, she would transition from a British accent sometimes to, you know, uh, an American accent. I don't know how she did it when she, you know, what possessed her to do it, but it was somewhat pretentious. And I was somewhat like, I loved it. I was like, Oh, this is fabulous. I want to be like that. But that was a problem in itself because she just was trying to, the way she was raising me was not the way that I needed to, to, um, you know, be raised, but she says, you know, Martine, you know, this lady, and I won't say her name, but, you know, let's call her Felicia. Felicia and I were just talking and uh, she was thinking that we should get, you know, you know, uh, Michael, making names up, into boarding school. Michael was my aunt's son. And since we're going to get him into boarding school, you know, we might as well apply for you too, right? Right. And- and that's, that was an act of love. Cause that literally that, that decision shifted my entire trajectory of my life because it felt like right in that moment or shortly thereafter, I was swooped, swooped, someone swooped in like a force swooped in, removed me from my aunt's diabolical, you know, environment and put me in an environment where people were literally taking care of me and protecting me. So right after that, you know, I was, you know, interacting with a group of women who were helping minority 
kids get into prep schools, into boarding schools. Um, and then right after that, I was put in the care of the boarding school. And then after that, I essentially became an emancipated minor because the school realized that um, I was in a very abusive household and it was not safe for me to go home. And they gave me the option to stay, to stay in boarding school. And I chose to, I was terrified of going back home to my aunt's, to my aunt's place. So that's what pre precipitated things. And um, I learned at my graduation from, from prep school, the day of my graduation, that I had a benefactor. Wow. I did not know that there was someone who was paying my way to school because the, 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 the high school ran out of scholarships. So they didn't have any more money for, to, 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 to facilitate my education. But there was someone, right? A person, a retired, a judge at the time, he's now retired, and his wife who decided that they would raise their hand and pay my way, second act of love, under one condition. And this to me is love. They did not want me to ever know that they were behind any of this because they did not want me to feel like I would owe them anything. And the only reason we ended up connecting and I was introduced to them was because their friend, who was the headmaster of the high school said to them, look, you guys, this young woman is amazing. You have to meet her. You have to meet this person that you're connected to. Um, and that's the only reason, but they did not want me to feel like I owed them anything. And the only thing they asked me was for me to pay it forward. And so that was the second act of love in this chapter, you know, the more recent yeah. chapter in my life. And, um, and, you know, thing about love is that when you, when you experience it, like I said, you don't always recognize it. And it shows up in the midst of turmoil and tragedy, right? And that's one of the reasons you can sometimes not acknowledge it or recognize it. And so basically right after um, I got into Hamilton College, where I met you and, and, and other <laughs> wonderful individuals, um, I, I was placed in, in deportation proceedings. Um, little did I know that right after my mother passed away that uh, my status was in question. I did not know that. I was on a temporary visa. It expired. And by the way, majority of people like myself, dreamers, right, or DACA recipients, um, typically the reason and the way they become undocumented or without status is because they overstay their visa, right? So the media will have you believe that the preponderance of people like me are crossing the border. That's one group. But the majority of people are overstaying their visa for one reason or another. So anyhow, my mom, here's what's so interesting about this. She was a permanent resident. My stepfather was American born citizen. And my mother was in the process of applying for her US citizenship when she passed away. Wow. So I slipped through the cracks and um, I was undocumented. Little did I know that I, that wasn't my priority when your parents die and you're orphan, you're not thinking about your status or lack thereof. I always grew up, I was raised as an American. I didn't know any difference. So that was the last thing on my mind. Um, I, and the way that it all happened was like, um, you know, it, it was sort of like a, in a, a dream. I, you know, I was working for the Dean of Faculty's office um, and I had a temporary, I had a, um, 
a social security card and uh, you know, the college was trying to figure out how they would pay me. Right. Because my, my social security card said non-working, right. It's the same. I've always had the same social security number since I entered the U S but it said non-working status. And so this was back in 1999 or 2000 before 9-11. So, you know, you know, thinking back to that time, there was a lot of ambiguity around immigration, right? The last thing that had happened um, around immigration or the last, um, you know, big change or movement around immigration was an amnesty act, you know, that um, the, the Reagan administration had rolled out, you know, years prior. So there was very little, you know, uh, familiarity with immigration and there was a lot of ignorance about it. So um, me and a, a, a member of the college administration decided, let's go to the social security office, right? Let's adjust Martine's status. Let's just get that non-working off her social security card and we can pay her, everything's good. And in that moment that we went to the Social Security Administration, we essentially handed my case to them and I was placed in removal proceedings, uh, which is a euphemism for deportation proceedings right away. And so that was my life for the next seven years. Yeah. And now what made it more complicated, there's so many layers, but again, I'm I'm being mindful of time, Corinne, because I think I've been talking way too much about this, but I was also stateless. So I, I kept all these things kept, you know, I kept uncovering all these things as the, you know, after, it, after every step that I took, it wasn't something that I was aware of until I would stumble across it. So meaning that, you know, even if I was going to be deported, sent back somewhere, there yeah. was nowhere for me to go. Right. And now we're moving into nine 11, right. Or the after the, you know, post nine 11, right. A couple of months after nine 11, um, there was a heightened sense of fear um, around uh, Arabs, around Middle Easterners, around immigrants, right? Because everyone in that, in all those categories were basically labeled as terrorists or potential terrorists. And so I feel that anyone who belonged to any of those groups, right? Um, felt like, I know I can speak for myself. I felt like a fugitive. I had to stay below the radar. Um, I didn't want people to assume people would automatically think I was a bad person and would not allow me, give me the opportunity to even explain myself because my label was illegal alien. There was no such term as undocumented immigrant back in 2001, right? It was, you're an illegal alien and there's nothing soft about that term. So there was complete fear. And on top of that, I had to go to these master calendar hearings, which, I mean, talk about, you know, mental health issues that develop from that because it's literally like, being, I don't know, I, I'm trying to find the right word or, or, or explanation for it, but there was just so much fear in these master calendar hearings because you're basically alone and you can only rely on your attorney. There isn't a jury in immigration courts. There's a judge and your the success of your case really relies on the judge, whether the judge, how the judge feels, right? Because the, the judge is supposed to be unbiased about 
the topic or the theme of immigration, but that's not the case for immigration judges, right? They have quotas, so they have to get through a number of cases in a particular time frame. They've got the pressure, and then they're they're biased, right? And so, depending on the judge you get, really determines the trajectory of your the course of your immigration journey. Well, I remember my attorney presented it to me in this way: if you get Judge A, then we might have a chance, right? If we get Judge B, um, Judge B is great. Judge B has a great reputation. Judge B likes immigrants, so we're going to be okay. We cannot get Judge C. Judge C pretty much hates people like you, so we cannot get Judge C. And guess what judge I got? I got Judge C. Yeah, Judge C, who was in Miami courts and was because they did, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, they decided not to disbar Judge C. Judge C was just moved over to the Buffalo court system. So anyone who got stuck with Judge C pretty much was screwed, you know? And so that's what happened. So Judge C was definitely on this crusade to annihilate me. And I, I do not use that term softly and wanted to deport me. Now, that's how I learned I was stateless because no country wanted would take me, right? Mm -hmm. So my birth country of Zambia did not acknowledge me as a citizen based on their their governance and certain policies that they have written. um, You have to claim citizenship, right? If If you've been away from the country for a significant period of time, you have to claim citizenship by the time that you're 21, something along those lines. I didn't know that. My parents' birth country, my biological mother and father, you know, were from DR Congo. I couldn't claim citizenship there. You know, maybe there was a window of time that I could have, but that ran out. And again, Congo has been in a 30-year civil war, especially right. in Eastern Congo. That's not necessarily a place you want to be sent to, um, especially as a woman and alone, not knowing the culture, not necessarily being able to speak the language fluently, which is French, French and Lingala, very few people speak Swahili, right? And I speak broken Swahili. And then third, the US didn't want me. Now, a lot of people don't know about stateless individuals, but there are over 10 million stateless individuals in the world. That number continues to grow. Um, They're probably most likely to be be trafficked because they don't have any legal recourse. Um, When you're stateless, it means basically no country wants you, right? Um, And there are different circumstances that lead to statelessness but want mine was, is a pretty common occurrence. So when you're stateless, that means that you're in limbo, truly in limbo, because there's nowhere you can go and there's no one fighting for you. There's no country that wants you. And so people who are stateless are, end up being in detention facilities indefinitely. They can be. Wow. And so for me, there were, there were conversations of, you know, what, what happens? Well, what could happen is if I was deported, I would just be in a detention facility, you know, and I knew I wasn't going to make it like we, I'm sure that many of us have heard stories of the human rights atrocities that occur in detention facilities on a daily basis. Um, I knew that I was not going to be able to just my own personality. um, I would not be able to withstand it like, and, and come out, you know, healthy and sane. And so um, that was really what I was dealing with for seven years, really trying to navigate this process, um, trying to exercise all possibilities, 
feeling completely broken and living this double life of, right? I can't be labeled as a terrorist or being labeled as an illegal alien because I will be demonized by anyone who doesn't understand. And so who can I trust? I probably can't trust anyone. Um, so I'm, you know, I, while I was at Hamilton and then went to grad school, I developed friendships, but um, I couldn't truly share and divulge my whole life story. Um, so I'm sure there were a lot of questions that some of my friends had and things that didn't necessarily make sense. I have friends looking back who said, Martine, you were always, you were so sweet, but you would get into these moods where you would get really depressed and it was really weird. And now they understand why. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you know, there were so many layers to this. On top of that, I was also trying to survive, like just have a home, right? My college environment, the school itself was my, my home. I didn't have a family to go home to. So it was about how long can I stay in school, right? Cause I'm undocumented. How can I get private scholarships, grants to stay in school because I can't work legally. Um, I'm in removal proceedings in deportation proceedings. How do I continue in this, you know, how do I sustain myself? So that's really my story. And so bringing it back to love is, um, at the end of the day, you know, I had to reconcile all these different emotions within myself, right, in order to come out of my immigration story as a whole and complete person. Now, what I didn't share with you was that my case was built around my mother and was built around my mother being abusive to me. Um, so it wasn't initially supposed to be this, the case that was that we were arguing, but uh, it was really meant to be built around my aunts who were abusive to me because there is uh, language in immigration law that says if you are a child, if you were a minor um, of a guardian or parent who was abusive, um, you know, and you're in, you know, you have a precarious immigration situation, that's grounds for reevaluating, you know, your status. Okay. So that was the only argument we had, right? That was it. There was nothing else in the immigration laws that could support a stateless person, right? Let alone uh, an undocumented immigrant, let alone a stateless person who has very little re legal recourse. So in the 11th hour, my attorney decided that we needed to build a case around my, my dead mother whom I hadn't reconciled those emotions or feelings, the abuse that I went through, the verbal assault, the battery, like that was heavy stuff, right? And then the way in which my mother and stepfather both died, um, I hadn't reconciled all those things. But then I was forced to, you know, I was forced to present it in the courtroom and I felt completely violated. And so I did feel like I was losing myself I felt guilty for bringing my mother into this. Um, there were a lot of different emotions. So I needed to reconcile for myself um, the, all these different feelings. I needed to find a place within myself where I could forgive my mother so I could be able to move forward. Yeah. And so that was really the journey about love. That's how my story really, um, I guess, it became complete. 
it wasn't about, and for anyone who doesn't know, I am a U.S. citizen now. I became a permanent resident once my case went to the Board of Immigration Appeals twice, and the board uh, basically sent it back, remanded it back to the judge and forced them to give me, forced the judge to give me permanent resident status. Uh, that's really unheard of. If that's like one in a thousand people get that opportunity because the Board of Immigration has a backlog. But the point that I'm trying to make around that is that it wasn't the Board of Immigration Appeals giving me a piece of paper saying you're a permanent residence that gave me this sense of freedom. It wasn't the validation from my lawyer that gave me that sense of freedom. It was years later, after the fact, when I went to meet, I found out that my biological father was alive. I went to Zambia to meet him. And my biological father was able to explain this gap in my life that I didn't know about and explain my mother to me. And he showed, shared this one piece of information about my mother that allowed me to get closure. And it was proof that my mother loved me because the entire time that I was going through my immigration situation, the, the, the case that I had to build around my mother was essentially saying my mom didn't love me. That was in my face all the time. Your mom didn't love you, you weren't loved, you weren't loved. So when I learned that my mother loved me, that I came from love, that I was a product of my mother and father once loving each other, and my father gave me this one indication of that, this proof, that is what freed me. That is when I became complete. Without that, I don't think I would be the person I am today. So that's my spiel. <laughs> I am... Um... You know, I'm so glad you share that because, you know, we went to college together, but we weren't, you know, very close in school. And there were moments where I saw you and I was just like, I wonder what's happening with her. And of course, you know, you're a teenager, you're, own, you're in your own world. And now that I'm hearing this, I'm like, oh, yeah, she was you were going you were fighting for your life. I was fighting. I was frightened for my life and I was fighting for my life. I was an emotional wreck. Um, I was suicidal pretty much my entire immigration journey. Every day, the fear was if I get deported, I could end up dead in a detention facility. And I'm terrified of that. And I couldn't deal with not knowing. Right. That's one of the biggest fears that the humans have, right? That's why thrillers and these, you know, um, these scary movies do so well because it taps into this this, this, the, 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 the human condition, which is like this fear of not knowing, like that makes people so uncomfortable. So imagine living with that day in and day out. Like I can equate it to, you know, the beginning of the pandemic when none of us knew what was happening. Right. We had no idea. Now imagine living that every day for, for seven years. years. No. Yeah. I was and having to be normal, right? And appear normal to everyone else because you're also having to survive. So, um, and I, and I'm very honest about, you know, the, 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 the mental health issues that I struggle with, because I think that that's often overlooked in this space around immigration. And I, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that this is heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, 
I just feel like there's so many, you had so many blessings and angels along your whole path. I mean, the fact that, you know, all these things that you shared, I'm just like, wow, you've been so blessed in a lot of ways, even though this was, you know, it's a terrible situation that you were in because you essentially were doing this by yourself. Yeah. And, um, and I'm so glad that the prep school happened and Hamilton was able to support you and you were able to like find yeah. um, comfort in certain places in your life because otherwise I don't know where you would be right now. And Corinne, the thing is, I'm glad that you say that I'm blessed because there was a time, I'll be honest, where I didn't see that. I chose not to see my blessings. Um, I felt like I was cursed, I was damned, and I was a victim. And that's all I could see. And that's all I chose to see. And I, I'm very real about that because um, I do realize that oftentimes when we're in these spaces, it is a choice, but no one wants to hear that. Because no. if you told me, Martine, you're choosing to be a victim, I would have been like, F you. Basically, mm -hmm. like, how dare you? Right. Um, but I like to get real about that when I'm interacting with other people in this space, because I want them, and that's not to say to make them feel like to invalidate them, but it's to empower them. Amen. I mean, I think yeah. that victim mentality is in almost every aspect of life and every human being at some point could look at their life and see where they're being a victim and right. see where life is not where they think life is against them and not for them. Because if they really start to think about it, they can be like, oh, life is for me. Look, look at all the miracles. I got the worst judge and look what happened. I still got my citizenship. You know what I mean? Like, but in the moment, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. So hard. And I, and yeah. I am, I am compassionate to people who are caught up in those emotions. I think that's real too. I, I'm not, one of those people who says, oh, you got to be happy. And, you know, I think gratitude is important, but I also give, I think it's important to give people that space to feel sorry for themselves. Right. But okay. Now you got it out. Now let's talk about where you have power and it might be minuscule, just a little tiny, bit. tiny piece of power, but let's find it. Right. Let's find your voice in all of this. Yeah. I do a two minute pity party. I have like a timer. And I whenever, <laughs> or sometimes it's two to five minutes. Sometimes it's 10 if it's really bad, but I, I literally put a timer on and I'm like, okay, I love that. I'm going to have my pity party and I'm going to be full on hundred percent into the, in this. Oh my God. Party. I love it. I love the timer. I am going to absolutely order a timer and do that. That's great. It's great. Cause then it's yeah. like, and then yeah. I just pour it out. And then when the timer's up, I'm like, okay. Yeah. What, what do I need okay. to do with my life right now? Now, now what? Yeah. Now what? Cause I mean, I know what it's like. I've had similar, you know, we, we don't have the same story, but I've had similar stories of being suicidal and being in this like victim space for years. And you know, what's interesting about being a victim. You don't think you're a victim. No, you don't. Well, okay. I will say that you don't think maybe most people don't think they're a victim, but I did want pity like that. Who says that? I actually did want people to pity me. There was something about that, that, I don't know. It's like, it, it helped. I wanted to be seen. Right. And so I wanted to be seen at any cost. I wanted to be validated at any cost. Mm -hmm. And even if it, the validation was, Oh, poor Martine, poor little orphan Martine who was right. Like feel sorry for me. Cause at least it means I exist. 
because the world that I lived in was telling me that I didn't exist. I didn't have a status. I didn't have a family. These are the things that define a person. I didn't have any of those things. So I did feel very invisible. And I was like desperate to have people make me real. So feel sorry for me. I don't care. But that was part of my problem. And I had to kind of reevaluate that. That's good. It's good that you say that because I feel like a lot of people want people to pity them because that's the only way that they'll get love. Like a lot of yes. people, so many ways, like people that get sick all the time, like mm-hmm. hypochondriac. So there's so many people that do things in a certain way just so people could take care of them, just so they can get love and attention. And that's right. just coming from such a deep, deep sense of pain. That's right. But I think all of us on a certain level do experience that level of like needing something and it's coming from a desperate place. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So back to that first question where you asked me like what my belief was around love. And I said, you you have to, you know, I actually think that you've got to identify who loved you first in order to find love within yourself. And, you know, my explanation and my rationale for that was just my journey. When I learned that I came from love, I was a product of love that these two people, I was formed from love and that this person, my mother, who I thought hated me, actually loved me. That's when I was able to actually open up to love. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, and, and I, I'm relaying it back to spirituality and religion because ultimately that's what it is. It's about, it's about knowing that there's something greater that loves us. And when we know that, I believe that's what, that's our first step into accepting ourselves and loving ourselves. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, because if you don't experience that unconditional love, you don't even understand what it means or how to express it. That's and right. It's, it makes a huge difference. And on the topic of love, let's get into the infinite love question. Okay. <laughs> so you told us your story, and you haven't mentioned how you work within the context of your story. So I would love to hear how you use love in your work. Yeah. So. Um, just to summarize what I'm an elevation strategist. So my, you know, I'm committed to working in spaces with individuals or organizations in giving people bridging the relationship between people who have access to things and people who don't have access to things and pretty much elevating everybody, right? So people know they can connect with each other and create more opportunities for everyone. So more specifically, where I do my elevation work is in the space of um, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, consulting and training for my, my company, Martin Colau Enterprises, LLC. And I do immigration work, right? Um, that's more of the nonprofit side. Um, more specifically, I work with stateless people and undocumented or immigrants or doc, uh, dreamers in equipping them with stories, right? Helping them actually um, develop their stories or enhance their stories, right? Um, and own their own narratives rather than having other people own it for them. Right. And so getting those narratives out there and amplifying their voices. So in those two capacities, and then the last one is really around learning and development that kind of ties into both, right. The DEI work and the uh, immigration and, and, um, and statelessness space. It's really using my background in learning and development, designing training and workshops to, you know, help people facilitate these types of, um, um, processes. So how does love show up in 
my work? There are three ways. So one is, look, there are instances where, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, where you don't necessarily um, like where you work. You don't like the, the people you're around, the industry, the company, the organization. And that's very real. So my journey in getting to where I am now involved me spending 10 plus years in corporate America, right? And I wasn't always happy with what I was experiencing in the environment and, and what, I, what I observed. But what I did love was the work that I was doing, right? At the very end of the day, it was the, the, the tone of the work. Um, it, was, it was about equipping people with a way to, to elevate themselves. That's how I saw it. When I was training people in corporate America, you know, when I was writing proposals, it was always about this, under, this underlying mission. And so I think the lesson in that is there are going to be instances, and I always say this, we're lucky if we love the place we work and we love what we do. Like that is like the ideal situation, right? But for most of us, okay, I won't say most, but for some people, you know, you have an opportunity to, you're not going to always love where you work, right? And that's, hopefully that's a temporary situation, but you can love what you do. You find the love in what you do. And so the root of me even getting to a place where I have my own business was loving what I was doing, even though I didn't love where I was all the time. It was like, no, 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 this is bigger than this company. This is what I'm trying to do. And let me focus on that. So that was a, that's one example of how I, you know, put love into my work. The second is, especially in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion. Look, I work with CEOs, C-suite organizations that will say the darndest things to my face. This is a polarizing topic for whatever reason. People just, you know, they are really um, passionate about this topic and the passion comes out in different ways. And so what I have to do is love the person I'm talking to because I don't always want to. <laughs> I don't always agree with them, but I have to love them so I can reach a place of understanding so that I can do my work. And that, that, that takes love because when you have someone saying to your face, I don't think racism exists. I don't think we should be talking about slavery. Like that happened years ago. I wasn't a part of that. And, you know, and they're saying that to your face you have to have love. You have to find love deep within you because otherwise, you know, you're just not gonna, you're, it's, it's gonna be difficult to, to, to navigate that, right? Absolutely. And then lastly, the love, you know, love also shows up um, through empathy and compassion, right? Um, when I work, like I said earlier, you know, I'm working with, I interact with people, especially in a statelessness, uh, an immigration, immigrant, undocumented immigrant capacity who, who feel broken, who feel hopeless. And I've got to give them love and find, give them the space to feel their feelings and, but remind them that they're not their feelings, they're a person, they are feeling this and it's temporary. So there's got to be love there instead of me going in and saying, well, this is how you should approach things and let's empower you and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You got to start with that love and that compassion. So that those are the three ways that, you know, I have love show up in the work that I do. Beautiful. <clears throat> so how do you feel like your work is used to serve humanity? 
Yeah. Well, with, with stateless people, stateless persons and undocumented immigrants, for me, it's about restoring their dignity. Mm. And that's really, that's servicing humanity. Like when people are marginalized and they feel broken, they want to be validated. They don't feel like they have a voice. And I don't, I disagree when, with people who say, well, let's give them a voice. No, you don't give anybody a voice. Everyone has a voice. They were born with a voice. They may not realize it. And that's what we get to do. We get to restore their dignity and there are various ways in doing that. So that's, that's one way. And, you know, the other way, um, the other way is by trying to minimize the polarity that comes with the work that I do, right? The conversation around immigration is polarizing. There's this group and there's that group and they feel distinctly different. Around diversity, equity, inclusion, there's this group and there's that group and it feels distinctly different. So my job, I feel committed. My purpose is to create a bridge, to bridge these two groups, to actually show them that while, you know, it's like going back to the basics of negotiating, right? You know, some, in negotiating, what you learn is, you know, we may have different positions, your position, my position, but there are some common interests, right? So let's look for those. And that has to do with humanity. Like we're all human beings at the end of the day. And so that's really what I bring into my work. And I think that's how it actually supports humanity. Beautiful. And it's so perfect for the time that we're in. Yeah, it is. So what do you love most about your life currently? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, you know what? I love that I am a, I'm a deliberate creator. And I know that's like blanket statement that, you know, we sometimes hear, but I, I, I'm deliberate in what I do. And I love that. I love that, um, you know, I get to decide who I want to work with, right? I get to decide the time frame that I want to work with people. And I get to be my full and complete self. I don't have to be anyone else but myself anymore, right? When I work with a client, I come in, I'm a consultant, I'm going to tell you what I think. And if you don't like it, well, then this might not be the right situation for you and I, like we probably shouldn't be working together. Right. And so I like that relationship where I have that autonomy and really it comes back down to freedom. Right. My whole journey has been about freedom and my, 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 you know, search for freedom. And now I feel like I truly have it. Right. And so I feel like I have such a powerful voice. I feel like there is no one that can quiet me down no company, no organization, no person, no judge, nothing. And that is what I love the most about my life. You're like a boss. <laughs> love it. But you too, Greg. <laughs> we are bosses. We are. <laughs> How do you feel you receive love? Mm. I feel I receive love. I receive love when... when I am most, when I choose to be receptive to love, because I believe love is always around me. Love is always around. It's all around all of us everywhere, but um, we can close off to love or we can be open to it. 
So I now choose because I realized there was for a long time, I did not choose to be open to love. And I ran around feeling like no one loves me, no one loves me. But now I am open to love. And that's like that. That was my mantra all of last year, especially when I was in, you know, in the state of COVID where I felt very isolated from people, felt very alone. Um, I kept saying, like, I'm open and receptive to love. Every People love me and I love everyone. I'm open to love. And so when I'm open to it, I feel like I'm able to recognize it because it's always around me. Yeah, totally. And when do you feel the most love? I feel, I actually had a conversation with my friend, my best friend about this. I feel the most love when I am understood, Mm. right? So I don't necessarily need someone to agree with me, but what I realize is that especially when I'm having discussions with people um, or disagreements, when when the other person doesn't even acknowledge what I'm saying or acknowledge my feelings or tries to shut down my feelings and say, oh, that's ridiculous. How could you feel that way? That's insane. I don't feel understood. But when someone says, I acknowledge how you feel, I I acknowledge that you're upset. To me, that's everything, right? And that's how I feel love when someone understands me. That's to me validation. You don't have to agree with me, but just understand me. That's it. Love is inclusive. It is. It absolutely is inclusive. And my last question is where has love created a miracle in your life? Oh man, this is good. Um, a good question. Well, I love, and I actually have this thing here. I keep at my desk. It's a quote. I don't know if you can see it. I'll read it. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is Albert Einstein. So I actually choose to see everything as a miracle, which means that I see a lot of things. Um, you know, love is, I see love all the time. But for me, I think the greatest miracle um, and how love has shown up and shown up as a miracle in my life is through my relationship with with my mom, you know, Um, to have that broken relationship mended 20 plus years after she died, my not knowing and understanding who she was as a mother and as a woman and coming full circle without her actual presence in life to learn this and to learn this in the most, oh, painful way, right? In, in the middle of a court, but to learn and to come to this resolution that my mom loved me and I love her. I loved her. She wasn't a good mother. She was a good person. And I now understand her from the perspective of being a woman, right? I don't condone her behavior, but I understand and I choose to love her and to actually be so resolute with that. uh, To me, that, that is a miracle because I know, and I've interacted with so many people that harbor resentment in their lives, especially towards their parents. Right. They say like in psychology, everything that we are and all of our issues come from our parents. So to finally come to that resolution for me, it's a miracle. I really think that's the biggest miracle for me. It is. It is. Overcoming big pain like that is miraculous because not only that, it just opens this floodgate of all your own energy. Because if you think about all the pain that we have, we're always, it's constricting yeah. and holding on to all of this. And when you let it go, you realize you have all this space inside all of yourself space. to live the life that you want to live. 
That's correct. And I'll say the other one. Can I have two? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Uh, the second one is I am just so thankful that I am able to navigate through different spaces, interact with different communities, different people, be authentically me and be received. You know, I am talking to a board, a public board for, you know, a big commercial real estate company. And then on the, you know, the next breath, I'm talking to and interacting with, you know, a victim of torture, who's my mentee, right? And to be able to be received by these complete polar opposite, you know, ends of the spectrum, and to feel like I can actually be myself in both spaces, um, I think that's a miracle too, because it's, I don't, I think that's rare. I don't, I don't think all of us get that fortune. So yeah. I, I, I do feel very fortunate about that. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'm just so proud of your journey and what you've been through and the fact that you're now doing this work and you're an author. Tell us about your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I actually have another book coming up. Oh, you do? You Oh, wow. Summer. But so this book is my memoir. It's called Illegal Among Us. This is my shameless plug, like right on camera. <laughs> but um, it's my memoir. It's about like, it's my story, the story of my journey of, you know, going from being undocumented and stateless to the person that I am. And, you know, there's some best practices and tools in there. Um, but it really talks about the mental health challenges and journey that I went through the journey of giving my mother um, and it's framed the book and the story is framed around my journey to meet my father in Zambia right and there are all these different layers and nuances to that so I think it's a it's a pretty good read it's just my my memoir but then my next book is called the ABCs of diversity um, diversity equity and inclusion in the new workplace and it's really focused on how managers really have the power to really change the landscape of diversity in their organizations, because oftentimes we think um, and we, we relegate that to leadership. Um, but really, managers have the widest belt in organizations, you know, and they have the greatest influence and they liaise, you know, from the top bottom and managers influence people outside of their organizations because they end up being mentors. So we've got to empower them and equip them and give them the tools. So this book that will be out in the fall, uh, cr cross my fingers, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm on chapter six and they're out of 10 chapters um, is really meant to be a guide for them. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. I'm like your biggest cheerleader here. I'm so Thank proud of you. That's you. awesome. Like, likewise though, Corinne, likewise. I, I, I was so looking forward to this conversation because I feel so inspired by you and I just, like your energy is so powerful and strong and so authentic. And I love to just, cause I think about where we both were in college and, and how we've evolved yes. as, you know, beautiful, strong, black, African American right. women, you know, and it's just amazing. It is amazing. Especially coming out of Hamilton, which is like zero diversity and, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah, we both we both did it. I mean, I don't you know, if we were to have this conversation senior year in college, I think we both would be like shocked about where we are. Yeah, there's no later. way I would have imagined being where I am today. I, I couldn't see past myself, my problems. 
Um, and I can't imagine like in 20 years from now, hopefully we will look the same. Um, but we, we know we will. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll share some tricks. We know we will. <laughs> please do, <laughs> please. But yeah, I mean, I can't imagine like where we're going to go, where we're going, where we're headed. And it's just amazing to be um, on this journey with someone like yourself. It's just, you know, it's really incredible. It's an honor. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Me as well. We, uh, so hopefully this podcast or something like it will still be in something oh, yeah. in, in a few years. And then we'll we can probably be a movie. It'll be on Netflix. It'll be a series on Netflix. I'm putting awesome. that out in the universe. Thank you. Yep. And we could check in every, every few years to see where we're at. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, but this is incredible. Um, and I think what's so great is that it's really framed around love. And I think that if more people remembered that it was all about love and the end, everyone just wants love, they do. you know, in the end we want love. We're, we're looking for the two things I think that human beings are always in search for. It's love and a home. Exactly. Right? Like those are the two things we just want a place to call home and we mm-hmm. want to feel loved. Yeah. It's the, it's breathe. It's like air. Everyone wants love and we do crazy stuff when we don't have it. And we cause us, we we're and it's, it's painful. It's painful. That's true. It. I agree. Well, I am sending you infinite amounts of love. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I so appreciate your energy and your story. And for those out there, please get her book and support her in any way that you can. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Corinne. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and tune in on Tuesdays for new episodes. For more information about me, please follow me on Instagram at Corinne J. Camara and my website, CorinneCamara.com. Sending you lots of infinite love.